This uh, section here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, of course, is such a pivotal teaching of the New Testament, Testament covenant, of the New Testament or the New Covenant, that Christ came to give. And, of course, he started out by showing us the kind of attitudes and the kind of approach to life that we ought to have. And then down here where we've been, he's more about our relationship with God and how we should approach Him. And he spends quite a little time in showing how this should be a very private relationship, that our communication with our Father and His Son in heaven is to be something between us and Him only, and is to be essentially kept private. He says, do it in your closet. Uh, don't be seen of men. Uh, God says we don't judge each other by our prayer and our Bible study time, but He judges by the fruits and that we are to look for the fruits in each other. So, telling our good deeds to others or telling of our prayer time or our study time or whatever to others is something really that needs to be kept to ourselves because ego is involved with it to show that we're praying and we're studying and that we're doing the things with God that we ought to do. Uh, no, we ought to do those things, but they ought to be done very privately, very quietly with God. And if we're doing those things in the right way, then men will see in our attitude and our approach that indeed we are being godly and seeking God. So they're to judge by those things, not about us telling about our spiritual life with God. That's really what the Pharisees were doing, was going around praying and telling of their good deeds and how much they served and so on. And uh, Our righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees by a long shot. Uh, unless they repent in the second resurrection, they'll not be in the kingdom of God in spite of all the so-called zeal that they gave. <clears throat> and in that light then, when he gave a sample prayer about the manner in which we ought to pray, which we went up through last week, I'll make one more comment to emphasize it. There is not one place in that sample prayer where it says, I, me, or mine. Not one spot in there. Uh, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, is the second commandment, as Christ summarized it. And if we're to love our neighbors and our, as ourselves, then we should pray for them the same way we pray for ourselves. So he doesn't say... You pray for what you want or what you think you need. He says, include your brother, because that's part of learning to love him as yourself, because you pray for him in the same manner and in the same way, and include yourself as you pray for your neighbor. If your prayers are essentially selfish and mostly about yourself, then you're not praying for your neighbor as much as you are for yourself, and you're not loving your neighbor as much as you do yourself. It's just that simple. So, no I or me or mine here. I think I did mention that David did at times pray about his enemies and his difficulties. So there is an example in the Bible of a very righteous man uh, addressing his needs. But Christ is addressing our overall approach in this sample prayer, that it is not to be a selfish thing. And then immediately after that, he says, we have to forgive men their trespasses or ours will simply not be forgiven. You cannot go into the kingdom of God without forgiving others of whatever trespasses they make toward you even times 490 times a day, <laughs> uh, to put kind of a number that's limitless on it, really. So our 
part in the kingdom of God depends a great deal on how we treat each other. God is going to have us living together in the kingdom of God in peace forevermore. And that is not just self. You're not going to be the only one in the first resurrection, and you'll have your special relationship with God. Even Christ's bride is to be 144,000 who work together in unison and in peace and in love and in kindness toward each other. Now, he's going to take a whole bunch of people that have had warts from Adam and Eve on down and meld them together in such a way that they will have peace among themselves with no ripples, with no trouble, with no attitudes, with no grudges, but in perfect love and harmony together. Now, he's down here filing away on our warts is what he's doing uh, to get us as much that direction as he can, uh, and we resist. So it takes a little more trimming and a little more filing than it really ought to, but uh, as human beings, we resist God. So he lays it out here for us on what needs to be done to get to the point we can live together in harmony. Not always easy. As humans down here who are still innately selfish, it's very, very difficult for us to harmonize. But we have to learn to do that. Then he goes on to another element, not just prayer, but he addresses fasting as well because it's one of the key tools that we need to use to draw near to God, to humble ourselves both before him and before men. Now, our relationship with men, again, has to do with the attitude and fasting. But he cautions us here again on not letting people know, for the most part, that you are fasting. Now, if somebody invites you to dinner and you don't have a good excuse otherwise, maybe you shouldn't offend them by saying, well, I don't want to eat at your table. Uh, maybe you'd say, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not eating today. I, I, don't, I try not to even use the word fasting even then. Well, I'm just not eating today. Uh, based on what he says here. Verse 16, moreover, when you fast, not if, but when, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. Oh, they'll go around with their lower lip down and their jaw sagging and look as bad as they can so that they can get some sympathy and some adulation for such a righteous thing that they're doing as fasting. No, he says, for they disfigure their faces, they look woeful, that they may appear to men to fast. Truly I say to you, they have their reward, and that reward is the goodwill or the adulation of men who think they must be very righteous if they're fasting. That's, that's the only reward they're going to get, is a physical reward from physical people. And what good does that do you? Very little. We spend way, way, way too much time worrying about what people are thinking or wanting to impress them. Our, our, our ego and our vanity is always there, right underneath the surface, wanting adulation, wanting recognition, wanting whatever it is that we want from people. But he says, that's the only reward they get for fasting. Now, to me, fasting is an onerous thing. I do not enjoy it, for the most part. It's, you know, you're hungry, you're thirsty, you're miserable. It isn't a, a real fun thing to do. I can, uh, there's just a, there's a plethora of things I'd rather do than fast. I mean, the, the list is long. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Look normal as much as is possible. 
You don't just drag around like, oh, I'm feeling so bad. So he says, the whole idea is that you do not appear to men to fast, but unto your Father which is in secret, just like prayer is to be done in secret, just like in Bible study it is to be done in secret. Fasting is to be done in secret. And your Father, which sees in secret, shall reward you openly. So fasting is something personal between you and God. And He sees what you're doing. He sees the attitude. You go to Isaiah 58, and it shows the right kind of attitude to have when fasting. Uh, to give what you have to the poor, to pray for others, to uh, have a good, solid Christian attitude toward people and toward God. And sometimes when our ridge of carnality and vanity and ego and self come to the front, is a good time to fast because when you don't eat or drink, you begin to feel weak. You begin to feel ineffective. You begin to feel like you need something, right? It may just be physical food, but there's a spiritual element that is always right there. Because if we go without food and water for just a short while, we begin to suffer. And we understand that the spiritual food and water from Christ and the Father is the food they can feed us and last forever. So sometimes physical deprivation helps you recognize and understand your spiritual deprivation so that you begin to work on being poor in spirit, which is the first thing he mentions in Matthew 5, where you're not all full of yourself, but you're emptied out physically and therefore should parallel it and should make the connection that of yourself you can do nothing. As a human being, we can't save ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. We have difficulty being what we ought to be. So, fasting is there to get rid of self, basically. Ego and selfishness. Then he changes the subject, because this whole thing is about our focus. It's about our approach to life. And he makes some very important principles. Verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust does corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. Now, I can read you a lot of scriptures, and we could go to them, where people did have wealth, they did have things, and I can show you some fine examples that you know of where God gave some of those things to people. Uh, like Solomon, because he had a, a right attitude and wanting to rule the people correctly and didn't ask for things, God gave him things anyway. And he'll say that down here just shortly. But what he's introducing here is our focus should not be on the things of this earth that we might save or add up or uh, or have our eye on. That's what it's all about, is focus here. Don't make your goal laying up for yourself treasures on earth. They're not permanent. Uh, moth and rust take care of a lot of things. Thieves can break in and steal them. So what good is it to have that as your goal and purpose when so many things can go wrong? And I've seen that with people who have a great deal, and they worry constantly about all those people who are trying to take it away from them, because it's constant. When you have, there are other people who want. They covet what you've got. And as a result, people have all kinds of insurance policies and prenuptial agreements and all kinds of things that they go through to try to preserve 
that which is the most important to them, and that's their wealth in whatever form they perceive it. That's what's on their mind. It's their goal. It's their purpose. It's seeking physical things. So what he's saying here overall is that's not our goal. Don't obsess about it. Don't worry about it, he'll say a little later. Instead, verse 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust does corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. It's quite a contrast there. We should be laying up treasures in heaven. Your spiritual piggy bank is far more important than your physical piggy bank, in other words. It's a matter of emphasis, a matter of focus. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, God says that we are to turn to him, heart, mind, body, and soul, and our heart is to be in the kingdom of God with him throughout all eternity. That has to be our focus. We can't be double-minded and trying to do everything we can to make this life wonderful. We need to be trying to reach the wonderful, which is the kingdom of God, where you'll have everything. I mean, here, if we have a street paved with asphalt, we think we're doing pretty well. Or even gravel on the road, we think we're doing fairly well. Well, you get in the kingdom of God, the streets are going to be paved with gold. How do you compare? (laughs) How do you compare? So, all the things that we try to strive for here will be had in total abundance there, and more than we could have even have dreamed of here, beyond it by far. So, where does your most of your attention go? Where does most of your focus go? Is it worrying about things here, or being concerned about things there? Because this is so temporary, so short, and that is... So eternal. I mean, there's no comparison, is there? So he'll explain this more and more as we go down. Wherever your treasure is, is where your heart will be. And we need our heart with God. So laying up treasure here doesn't help that relationship because it takes so much of our time and energy to try to accumulate treasures here. So people who don't have treasures here worry about getting it and connive and try every way they can to get it. And then those that do have it spend all their time worrying about keeping it. So neither focus on God. Verse 22, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye be single, your whole body shall be full of light. But if your eye be evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you be darkness, how great is that darkness? Now he's using this analogy as a response to what we just read about treasures. What's your eye on, in other words? Is your eye on things in this physical life, or is it focused on God and the things spiritual and eternal. Because if it's focused on stuff down here, this, is, this earth is darkness. His kingdom is the light. He is the light. Satan is darkness. And, and Satan rules this world, and he's the one that affects and influences everyone on the planet. Everyone. And it's darkness. So if your eye is on the things of this world and the things of the devil, then you're in darkness, just like the world is in darkness. So you've got to keep your eye on God in heaven. And he explains it further in verse 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. 
You can't serve God and money. Man or money. Mammon. You, you just can't do it. You've got to serve one or the other. If you're, if you're focusing on the things of this world, you will not give God what He wants you to give Him. Which one will it be? Which one will you focus on? Because wherever you focus is where your heart is. You serve one or the other. That's just it. Now he'll explain some more. Therefore, I say to you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat? And the body than raiment? Is food and clothes what's important? No. No. Now, the Greek does imply here anxious thought. Should we take thought of what we're going to wear or our food? I think it's very clear in many, many scriptures that certainly we have to address those issues. Paul makes it very clear, if you don't work, you don't eat. So if you say, well, I don't worry about that, God will feed me, God will clothe me, God will take care of me, uh, he'll pay the rent, uh, you know, and he'll go shop and he'll bring it to me by a raven to feed me like he did Elijah for a short while. Uh, God will take care of me, I don't have to be concerned about these things. No, he's not saying don't be concerned, because if you don't work, you don't eat. And he says we should know well the state of our flocks and herds. The things that you have to do with here on the earth, you need to be aware of and be sure they're in good shape. Go through the Proverbs. You'll see a lot of them. Because of laziness, the roof falls in. And uh, if you don't go to work, you say there's a lion in the streets, you know, he might eat me and so I can't go to work today. Or all the excuses we have. So it's not that we're not to take thought of these things. Uh, we're not to worry about them or take anxious thought about them. Spend a lot of time about it, in other words. Yes, we are here to learn to use physical things. He says we're to be good stewards of what we have here. So take care of it. Do it. Work. If you, He said... Right there to Adam and Eve. You're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow to make a living. So, did they have to think about that? Did you have to think about getting up to go hoe the weeds or feed the cows or whatever? Yeah, you got to think about that. you got to do that. That's part of being a good steward of whatever God does give you. But it's anxious thought and worry and focus on that becomes a problem. Because he's, he's talking about focus in this whole section. So don't take anxious, worried thoughts or have your mind filled up with these physical things so that they become your goal and your purpose and your master. Because you can't serve them in God. Be aware of them. Work for them. Wear them, but don't worry about it. Some of us just worry. We just worry about this and we worry about that. We worry about something else. That's simply a character flaw that needs to be overcome, needs to be worked on, so that we coach ourselves, we teach ourselves not to worry. Some people are like the the what me worry thing. What was his name? I forget. Doesn't matter. Uh, I don't worry about anything. He said. Well, you you have to take thought of, but you don't need to be worried about all the bad things that could happen or all of stuff in life. Ninety nine point whatever percent of what you worry about never happens anyway. The only place that it becomes a problem is in your own mind. That's where it's a problem. Because it isn't probably even going to happen. 
and it makes you negative. Well, God doesn't want us to be negative. If you're a worry wart, that very state of mind is a negativity. You're concerned about it to the point that you spend a lot of time thinking about it or worrying that such and such is or is going to be. (coughs) So that's looking at life not in faith moving forward, trusting God to take care of things. That's you selfishly and egotistically thinking about things that probably will never happen, and if they do, you deal with them when they happen. We have to be positive in our approach. So we have to work on it so that we can be that way. You know, we have lots of flaws. We have lots of difficulties. And this is just one of them. It's no worse than some others, but it's as bad as some others. And with some, it's a big problem. With others, it's hardly a problem. Uh, just like anything else. Every man's set of problems is a little different than somebody else's, but we all have to work on whatever our set is. So, that's what he's saying here. Don't take anxious thought for your life, what you're going to eat or drink, or your, what you're going to wear. Uh, there's more to life than just these physical things that we spend too much time focusing on. And then he says, Behold, the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? He says in another place that not even a sparrow falls to the earth, and he's not aware of it. So he knows all of our needs. He knows all of our problems. He knows our wants, our desires, our dreams. He knows everything. And he's analyzing our thoughts, our desires, and our dreams, and in what perspective we hold them here as physical things as opposed to how much we spend time concerned about the spiritual things. We're physical, so it's natural to think about and be concerned about the physical. But we're not supposed to remain physical forever. So our thoughts and our focus and our main thing should be about the future. And that's why he's talking about attitude and fasting and praying and all these things in here is because our Father in heaven is our master. And Christ bought us from Satan in this world with his blood, his death. So we've been purchased. We're his slaves. We're his servants. We are here to do his will, to do his bidding, to focus our life on what he wants of us since he's our owner. We need to become like our puppy dog. I don't mean wet the floor. I mean your Lord and Master to your dog. He wants to do everything he can to please you. He'll come up to you and wag his tail and his whole body, just hoping that he's pleasing you and you'll pat his head or give him a treat. His focus is on you. And sometimes when you leave, he'll mope around or tear stuff up, in some cases, anxiety, separation anxiety, because his focus is on you. And God wants us to be that way toward Him. But we want to make Him happy. We want to please Him in everything we think and do. That's what He would have of us. So He says, quit your worrying about stuff that's not as important. Put your focus on the important Which of you, by taking thought, can add a cubit to his stature? Some people worry about how tall they are, but it really doesn't matter. You, that's as much as you grew, and wishing you were taller won't help a bit. Some people who are taller wish they could take a cubit off their height, 
because they can't get in a car or a telephone booth. Well, they don't have those anymore, but you know what I mean. Guy's too big, can't get in. The guy's small, can. If he needs a ladder, he can use one. I'd rather be shorter and use a ladder than trying to take my head off to get in the car. But we have our things that we worry about. I can't change my stature. Well, maybe I can wear high heels. But I don't think I will. I might fall off and break my neck. Now, I can't do anything about my height, but I could do something about my girth. So maybe I should take more concern with that, you see, because that's something that can be changed. So be concerned about, to some degree, about things that you can do something about, but quit worrying about things that are beyond your control and you can't fix anyway. What good does it do to worry about it? Why take you thought for clothes? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil, they don't spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. There's not a one of us here that's pretty as a flower. And you can't put on clothes that are prettier than a flower. You might have clothes that have pictures of flowers on them, but they're still not as pretty as a flower. So God took care of the flowers, didn't he? Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall not he much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Flowers, the grass, the trees, they last a little while. If it doesn't rain, they wither up. And when autumn comes, they die off anyway. The leaves fall, the grass withers. They don't last long. But you're here to last a long, long time, forevermore. And if God is concerned for these things that come and go with the seasons or die with the drought, if he's concerned with them, how much more is he concerned with you, whom he intends to cause to live forever? So, what are we worried about? That's the whole point. What are you worried about when God is so concerned for you? Oh, you of little faith. That's the point. We don't trust him to take care of things. That's why we worry, is because we don't trust God. That's why we worry. We trust in ourselves, who can't probably fix it anyway, and worry about it unduly, so much time and concern, being concerned about this or that or the other thing, and what it shows is a lack of faith. Because all these things, God says, he's concerned about, he knows about, he'll take care of. Just do your part and trust him to make up whatever difference there is. Solomon said of this world and the people in it, time and chance happens to them all. It is not that way with you and me. God is watching us very closely, very concerned. A lot of things don't happen to us that would have happened to somebody out in the world just by time and chance. And sometimes something comes along that is about to happen to us. In one case, God may prevent it or fix it. We've all seen that happen where we had such a close call in traffic or wherever. And then sometimes he lets us have a real problem to teach us, to show us, to try us, to see if we will trust him, to build our faith because he delivered us in some form or fashion. Have you been in accidents where you really probably should have been killed? I have. 
And it didn't happen. Didn't even get scratched. Really. I think God was there. He didn't prevent the accident. He might have been telling me something. I need to think about what it was. But he also prevented something horrible. And in some cases, he let some horrible things happen to us. But there's a reason and a purpose behind it. I guess Job is always the fallback answer on that one. He had just about as bad of things happen to him short of death that ever happened to another human being on this earth. And it wasn't by happenstance. It wasn't time and chance. God sicked the devil on him on purpose. Says, you go do these things to Job. Just don't kill him. Anything short of that, go for it. And he put a lot of things just short of it on him. Why? Was Job sinning terribly? No, he was a righteous man. One of the three mentioned in Jeremiah or Ezekiel, if those three were here, they could only save themselves. So he was a very righteous man. Make no mistake about it. And yet there was something that God wanted him to learn that he didn't grasp yet. So he put the most horrible things on him that you could possibly imagine. Not by time and chance, but very much on purpose. He couldn't understand it. His friends couldn't understand it. They got judgmental of him. You must be a horrible, rotten sinner. This wouldn't happen to you. And on and on it went for chapter after chapter. And then finally, he came through to Job. Oh, that's what I've been missing. This is what I needed to learn. It was a humility and a trust in God and a realization that as good as Job was as a human being, he wasn't anywhere near what God was. And that's what he shows there in the last chapter or two, is the contrast between himself and the greatness of God. That's what God wanted to get across to him. And when he did, and began to pray for his friends, thy kingdom come to us, not me. He began to pray for his friends, and it all turned around. God ran the devil off and began to bless him again. Did worldwide church come apart by time and chance? Not on your life. Not at all. God spewed us out of his mouth, this time because of sin and lack of zeal, lack of purpose, lack of faith, lack of wholeheartedness primarily, in our worship of him. And he says, if we will turn to him, and 10% will, he will gather them and bless them. Once we learn what it is that he's trying to get across to us and do something about it, then he's going to bless us, heal us, help us in every way, shine his blessings upon us. It's all promised in here that when this happens, he will do his part. It's all there. No, it wasn't time and chance where we found ourselves as a church. There are some who judged worldwide and said, well, it never was the church of God at all in the first place. And they had this wrong and they had that wrong, had something else wrong. Did God ever say there was nothing wrong with it? He said it was his church, but he said, It was his church, and we are still his church, but we weren't what we should be. That's all he's trying to get across. Quit being concerned about all these physical things, and trust me and follow me, O you of little faith. Believe that I will put you in my kingdom if you'll just overcome and grow. Believe it. So then, go do it. Walk in faith. The just shall live by faith. Trust. And that precludes 
worry and frustration over the things in this life. That isn't our focus. Oh, you have little faith. Therefore, take no anxious thought, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. That's what the world wants. Fine clothes, fine food, everything that they could possibly want physically, that's their goal and their purpose. Keep up with the Joneses, have a bigger house, have a nicer car, have a bigger bank account, have vacations wherever you want to go, lead the jet set Hollywood type of life. The American dream, if you will, is the Gentile dream, the carnal, human, fleshly dream. Yeah, we're here to enjoy the things that God made for us and to appreciate them, but it shouldn't be our focus with anxious thought. Just take care of those things, but put your focus on God. How much time do we spend with God compared to how much time we spend just on physical things? Now, part of the focus on God is how we handle physical things. Because we have to go to work eight hours. I mean, just on average, is a general thing. So, you're not praying, you're not fasting, you're not studying while you're at work. You're working for whoever you're working for. But, God should always be on our mind and our focus even as we do that work. How would Christ do this job? How would Christ serve his employer? What kind of work would he do? What kind of attention to detail would he have? Would he produce a day's work for a day's pay? And maybe even go above and beyond to be sure he was a good employee. To try to be the best employee on the job not out of competition, not out of trying to look down on others because you're working harder, but to try to give the best that you can in whatever endeavor it is. So your focus, even at work, is godly. It's thinking about how does God do things? How would he do this? I should do it the way he wants it done. For those purposes, because he's going to have you working throughout all eternity as a bride of Christ, doing the things that a woman does, taking care of the children, the millennium, the great white throne judgment, how far out the duties go and exactly what form they are. It doesn't take it into eternity, but it certainly goes that far, that we are to be mindful of the things that he needs and wants done, and to live the way he wants us to live. And we very poorly go through that as humans here, husbands and wives, trying to be like Christ and trying to be like Christ's bride and falling far short of it. The men have trouble leading and ruling in the way that Christ would with love and compassion and mercy and attention and feeling for and doing for and making sure his wife has everything she needs and she's happy and she's taken care of physically, emotionally, and as much as possible spiritually. Instead of just focusing on himself and what he likes and what he wants and what he wants to do. No, we're to be living together as partners in the flesh. And he should be so careful to think of her and her needs and her wants and her desires the way he takes care of his own needs and wants and desires. But, guys, we tend to be a little selfish we want what we want, and we want her to take care of our needs instead of focusing on taking care of her needs because it's a two-way street and a two-sided coin. 
Do we put more on her than we would put on ourselves? Do we lead in love and mercy and concern and thinking of her and her needs and concerns? And does she, who's commanded to obey her husband, slough off on it or not take care of things because she says, well, I have my life. I want to live my life. Why should I do everything he wants to do and I never get to do anything I want to do? Well, there's a problem there too. But there's a point where you stand up and say, hey, wait a minute. I'm trying to love you. I'm trying to obey you. I'm trying to serve you. But you're making it awful hard for me to do it. Because you don't take care of me properly, emotionally, mentally, uh, and all those things. So there's a time when you're pinched that you need to speak up. Say, hey, wait a minute. This is a two-way street. And I is just as good as you is. We're equal. Now, the man is to be the leader between two equals. He's not supposed to suppress her or put her down or misuse her or abuse her in any way. Because a woman can feel mighty oppressed and frustrated. And then it's kind of hard for her to love and obey someone who's always pinching her emotionally or whatever way. It's difficult. Being second fiddle, in that sense, is very difficult to perform. So a man needs to have mercy and compassion and be careful what he lays on a woman. So that marriage should should reflect the mercy and love and compassion and forgiveness and care for the lilies of the field as Christ cares for us. Be sure she's taken care of in every way. And it'll make it a whole lot easier for her to love you in every way instead of a difficult chore because you're being such a jerk or so selfish or whatever. So there our focus, again, is Christ and his bride. Marriage is a physical union between a man and a woman as heirs together, equal inheritors together. And that's what it should become as much as is possible on this earth with human beings. So the focus is Christ and his bride. That's the focus. So then my and and my wife activity should be then on working together toward peace and harmony and happiness and love. And both have to give in order for that to happen. Takes two to tango, takes two to tangle. You can't do it alone and selfishly. And marriage is, if nothing else, the most important place that we not be selfish. Because that's the closest relationship there is on this earth and should be. The children are secondary. Do we grasp that? In our world today, they're trying to make the children first, ahead of father and mother. Put them first. Keep them happy. Keep them pleased. That's the focus in our world today. That's the focus of the psychology books. It's not of God. It's not in the Scripture. That's wrong. Dad and mom come first. They represent Christ and his bride. The children are secondary to that. Secondary. Always. The relationship of the Father and the Son in heaven is that they are one. And their relationship there comes ahead of their relationship with you and me as the children. 
right? They have to keep it right between themselves first. Then they can be of service and help to and train the kids right. But if they're not on the same page and they're pulling against each other, there's not going to be peace and harmony in the kingdom forevermore. So it has to be togetherness at the top first. And the kids are secondary. They're important, yes. But look at the world. Everything for the kids. Do it all for the kids. Everybody's got to have a star. Everybody's got to have a birthday cake. Everybody's got to do all this stuff about self. No. It's not about self. It's about cooperation and working together to achieve an end. And marriage is the closest relationship there should be. Children are of our flesh, but they are of what flesh? A man and a woman. There's where it started. The man and the woman in their relationship comes ahead of the father or the mother in the relationship with the kid. Now, we get it out of balance because father and mother may not get along, so we have the kids. I've heard women say, well, I can't get along with him, and my life's miserable. I think I'll have some kids, so at least I have something. And they don't have children sometimes for the right reasons. They have them because they don't have anything else. It shouldn't be that way. Husband and wife ought to have children as a fruit of their love and their affection and their harmony together, and then they don't let the kids pull them apart. But that's what kids try to do. They'll play the father against the mother, mother against the father to get their way. And if the parents give in to that, then they got a real problem because the kids will pull them apart. No, realize father and mother are the first and the most important relationship, and the kids are secondary to that. And if you keep that in balance, things will be okay. In this world, they put the kids first, and now they're killing the kids. They can't get it right. Oh, everything for the children. Well, let's kill them instead. <laughs> we'll abort them. We'll molest them. We'll be pedophiles. We'll be queers. No. Be father and mother. Be normal. Be heterosexual. And be close. And when the kids see that closeness so that they can't divide you, then they will come closer to obeying and serving and being the kind of kid they ought to be. We can't separate the father and the son. Don't even want to try. But the world and their religions do. They try to put Jesus ahead of the Father. That's what the religions are about. And then some of them try to separate and put the devil ahead of both of them. And that's what we've got today as a Luciferian world developing very rapidly. Now let's keep the relationship straight. Keep the focus straight. Get the first thing right. And then the second will follow along. Harmony all the way down. If you're putting the kids first, you got it backward, you got it wrong. Fix the marriage, fix the relationship, and then the kids will live together in more peace and harmony when they see dad and mom living together in peace and harmony. Because if they see them jerking at each other, uh, that's what they learn. That's what they do. Your children should never see you disagreeing. If you've got to fight, leave the kid and go fight in private. You're gonna, what are you going to teach them? You're going to teach them, well, Dad and Mom fight. I guess I can fight too. No, they should see peace and harmony and love between father and mother. And if they don't see that, then they're going to become what they see. So don't let them see the bad side. Let them see the good side. 
and try not to have a bad side. <laughs> I mean, that's just one we work on, but the bad side will be there. There will be conflicts. There will be difficulties. Where was I here? Verse 32, all these things that we worry about is what the Gentiles worry about. That's what their focus is, because they don't know God. And the world really is divided into two things today. Those who are spiritual Jews and spiritual Gentiles. Physical blood, Jew or Gentile, makes no difference, whatever. God included the Gentiles in, in the church. So the spiritual value or the spiritual condition is the only one that matters. So black, white, brown, yellow, green doesn't make a bit of difference for those who still like to brag that they're of Israelite blood. Doesn't make one whit of difference what you are. Spiritually is all that matters. And what are we? I doubt there's anyone who's pure Israelite, physically speaking, anywhere. We're all a mixture of all kinds of things that have come down through the generations. And I doubt there's a pure Israelite anywhere, anyhow. So, what are we bragging about? Just because we have a little higher percentage or something? Baloney. Let's be spiritual, we ought to be, and the physical really doesn't matter. That's, that's the whole point of this thing, is the physical doesn't really matter the spiritual is the key to everything. But seek you first the kingdom of God. Primary. Number one. Seek you first the kingdom of God and His righteousness to be like Him. And all these things shall be added to you. So here he says it. I know you have these needs. I know before you even ask that you have these needs. So what are you worried about? I'm taking it into account. I know what you need. You need a job? I can help you find a job. You need a car? I can help you get a car. You need shelter from the rain? I can help you do that. You need clothes? I can help with that. I will see to it, if you'll do your part, physically speaking, that those things are covered. What I'm concerned about is that you focus on me and the things that are eternal. That's what really counts. So yes, take care of physical things and then ask him if there are needs to help you with them. But be sure the focus is on you and your brothers and sisters being in the kingdom of God. Forgive us our trespasses. Provide us our daily bread, not just me. Seek the kingdom of God with your brothers and sisters, and his righteousness and all these things will be added. Therefore, take no anxious thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. I mean, you've got to get through today. There's enough to be concerned about today just to get from now till sundown. So why are you worrying about tomorrow at the same time? Or next week at the same time? Tomorrow will come and you'll deal with it as it plays out. So you don't worry today about today. You just do the best you can and keep your focus on eternal life and God. And tomorrow you'll do the same thing. Sure, you got to work, you got to make a living, you got to do these things and take care of physical things, but they're not your focus. They're not what you have your mind on all the time. They're there to be done and to done, be done in a godly way, whether it be the job, the marriage, the, the church, the whatever. It's there to be done in a godly way. And that's the focus, is living this life the way God would live it if he were here. Because God did come here, and he lived it in a certain way, and we are to be following in his steps and walking as he walked, and do it the way he did it. 
Now, Christ had a house. He had clothes. He had fine clothes, in fact. So nice that when they killed him, they played an odd man out on who got his clothes. So, yes, he had fine things. But his focus was on God. And God gave him the wherewithal to have a house and clothes and to eat good food. God has given physical blessings to a lot of people in the past, or some people, because they were focusing on God in his way. Solomon wanted wisdom and understanding and those things, and his mind was more on them than it was on the physical. And then a change came over Solomon. God gave him all those things that men normally desire. More wealth than anybody had ever had. But he had also said, don't multiply to yourself wives or women. Three, four, five, six is plenty, Solomon. Don't start multiplying them out. But he wound up with a thousand. That's... Too many, (laughs) by far. Well, what happened? They took his mind off of God and his focus off of God, and they caused him to commit all kinds of errors and worship Baal, because that's what they were doing. Because he got women from all over the world, from every different race and every different religion. And they worked on him, because each one of them, whatever she was, wanted him to be like them. So he had a thousand of them trying to get him to be like each one of them. Now there's some headache and heartache involved there. Trying to please a thousand women. Hard enough to please one. Truly. Can I see the hands of all you guys that have been able to please one all the time? Won't see many hands on that one. Got to work at it, but it's, it's hard to do. So, in a word, all he's saying here is put first things first. Put God first. And take care of these other things, but have your focus on God And don't let these physical things take your focus off God. So it's not wrong to have nice things. It's not wrong to prosper. It's not wrong to use your intelligence and your hands to earn or make or accrue a certain amount of wealth. But that isn't your goal. Remember the one story about the guy that, oh, he was so wealthy and he'd had all these big barns full of stuff. And he decided, man, I don't have enough barns. I think I better tear down my barns and build a lot of bigger barns because I need. Well, he was going to die and he couldn't take his barns with him. He couldn't take what was in his barns with him. But it was his focus. It was what he thought about. It's what he dreamed about. It's what had him as a servant to stuff. It's okay to have stuff, but don't be a servant to it. Put God first. And then if stuff comes along through your work or your mind or whatever, that's fine. Enjoy it. Solomon should have enjoyed all the stuff God gave him, but not let it take his focus off of God. That was his problem. And that's all Christ really is saying here, is make your focus me. And all these other things, whatever they are, are handled with that focus in mind. Now, he didn't marry while he was here, And I think for very good reasons. Uh, There are enough people that think he married four women and had a bunch of kids and died at 104 and 
and they're related to him, and they're therefore more important than the rest of us. Merovingian is what they call that. There's a lot of them around. No, he didn't have children. He didn't have a wife. And there was a reason for that. But he had all the desires, all the wants that any of us have. And he handled it right, and his focus was always on his Father in heaven. So yes, he had finer clothes by far than any of you and I have on today or probably ever will have. I can't imagine anybody sitting down and gambling over your clothes or mine. So they were some pretty nice duds. And he had some money from Joseph of Arimathea or however he got it. He had it. And he had a house and all those things. But that's not what he was concerned about. He was busy out doing things for others. And he even said, the son of man doesn't have a place to lay his head. Well, it says in another scripture, about talks about his house. But he didn't stay in his house all the time because the house wasn't the most important thing. He was out doing what needed to be done, and sometimes he had his head on a rock or on his hand or wherever he put it. So he says, it doesn't matter whether I'm home in my house or whether I'm out here sleeping on the ground with my disciples because we have work to do. My focus is the work, not the house or the clothes. That's what he's telling us here. So... Don't worry, don't fret, trust me, live the life here the way Christ did, the best you can, and everything's going to work out peachy keen. That's the point. And I'm out of time, so this is a good place to stop with one chapter to go, and we have one Sabbath before Passover, which is next Sunday night, and uh, we'll have a change in direction, I'm sure, with what's spoken, so... I think I can get through chapter 7 next Sabbath, and then we'll have unleavened bread.